Okay. Hello, everybody. God is good. All the time. All right, we have something special we got to take care of here this morning. Uh, two things are going to happen here in just a minute. Uh, we have a special guest with us today. This is her first time to be in attendance here at the uh, Sunshine Church. We knew she was going to make it eventually. We just didn't know when. And today is the day that Kinsley McRae has come to church for the first time here at Sunshine. And the first thing I want to do, I want you to welcome Kinsley. Now, she's back here in this corner. I want you to welcome Kinsley. Give her a round of applause. We're really glad she's here. And the second thing we do, we're going to give God a big round of applause. <laughs> Amen. And let's just say a prayer. Father, thank you so much for being the God who answers our prayer, the God who sees, the God who knows. Uh, Lord, you've made yourself available to us. You've given us, uh, you've given us all the wonderful blessings that we have through your son, Jesus Christ. And one of those is that we can come to you and ask you for anything because you are bigger than anything, any problem we may face. Father, you have solved a huge problem here. You've used many people in that process. We thank you for those people. We pray that you would bless them for the becoming tools in your hands. But we thank you, Father, for today that uh, Kinsley can be among us. We look forward to the day when she does indeed run around through these aisles and create all kinds of havoc and problems. We're looking forward to that day. And uh, we thank you for every child in our congregation, Father. Uh, they are never a problem. They are most wonderful treasure you've ever given to us. Help us to treat him in this way, Father. Thank you for uh, your son. Thank you for the way of salvation you made available to us through him. We make this prayer now in the powerful and holy name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. Let's, let's get at this. The Bible defines a Christian in many different ways. One of those ways is found in Romans chapter 8 and verse 14, and this was in our scripture reading this morning. It's the verse that says, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Now, a son of God is a, is a Christian, someone who belongs to the Lord. And he tells us that uh, one of the ways that you can identify someone, whether they are a child of God or not, is are they being led by the Spirit of God? So I think that was a valid definition of a Christian in the first century, and I think it's still a valid definition for a Christian today. What does it mean to be led by the Spirit of God? Well, God has always had a way of leading his people. Back in the days of Abraham, we call, I call this, many people call it the patriarchal age, in the days of the patriarchs, God led his people through visions and dreams and visitations of angels. Later on in the time of Moses, uh, there are some things added to this, some things changed. Uh, God led the nation of Israel uh, with a, a big cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He gave them a law, a written law from Sinai for the first time to lead them and to guide them. He gave to the, uh, to the high priest these two stones that, were on the, that he wore on the front of his uh, chest uh, when he had on his vestments called the Urim and the Thummim. Basically, it was like... You could get a yes or a no answer for certain questions. It was kind of like casting of lots, but that 
that in that way, God's will could be revealed through the use of the Urim and the Thummim. And then we have stories in the Old Testament of things like uh, Gideon, you know, who put out his fleece uh, two different times and made his prayer. And God revealed by the condition of the, the uh, of the fleece what his will was. All those things are happening in the, uh, from the time of Moses coming forward. Then we come up to the time of Jesus. And again, we, we still have angels and visions and dreams are still there. God is still revealing himself in that way and leading his people in that way. But Jesus added a new dimension to God's leading of people. Jesus not only had a message from God, but he was the message. And two times in John chapter 1, John refers to Jesus as the Word. That is the message, more or less. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's John 1.1. And then again, down in chapter 1 and verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so Jesus not only had a message, he, he was the message. And in this way, God led his people. As Jesus was about to leave this world, he made a promise to his disciples. This is John 16, 12 through 13. We looked at this verse last week. He says, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will disclose to you what is to come. Jesus is explaining to his disciples, he said, I'm leaving. I mean, you've had me around to teach you and to guide you and to lead you all this, but I'm leaving. But when I leave, you won't be leaderless. You won't be comfortless. You won't be without some idea about what to do next. Uh, God will send, I will send the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit begins to guide the apostles shortly after the time that he made this promise. This was made on the night that Jesus was arrested. Fifty days after that night came Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit is actually given to these uh, 12 men, to these apostles, and they uh, begin to be guided or led by the Holy Spirit from that point on. Not only were the apostles guided by the Holy Spirit, but we know from reading our New Testaments that there were, there were some early Christians beside the apostles who were given gifts of the Spirit, miraculous gifts, gifts of revelation. And they would speak bits and pieces of God's new revelation for the church as, as the need arose. That sort of thing did happen, and you probably most of you are aware of that. But now we, uh, as we look at Romans chapter 8 and verse 14, these words are written by the Apostle Paul in the letter to the Romans around 56 A.D. He writes this to the church, and he says, As many for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. What is he talking about? What does he mean when he says, led by the Spirit? In 56 A.D., there are five ways that that, I think, the Spirit was leading the people of God. And I want to just hit those very quickly, and then I want to come back and talk about each one of them in more detail. But in 56 A.D., to be led by the Spirit of God meant these things. Number one, the Holy Spirit might lead the church or did lead the church through revelation given to an apostle. That's what that promise in John 16, 12 through 13 is about. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. Jesus was speaking to the 12 at that point. And he says the Holy Spirit's going to tell you 
uh, all the things. That, he's going to guide you into all the truth. That's the first way, and that's the primary way that the Spirit leads the church. There was a second way in, in the first century, 56 A.D. The Holy Spirit led through the revelation that was given to those people who were not apostles but possessed that gift of revelation, like the gift of prophecy or the gift of knowledge or the gift of wisdom. Those are gifts that are specifically listed in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we're going to look at those in just a minute. The third way that the Holy Spirit led was through the wisdom that is promised in James 1 and 5, the wisdom that comes through prayer. And this is where James says, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. James speaks of a wisdom there that can be gained from God by simply asking him for that wisdom. And I, I believe that this is a way that the Spirit, the Spirit is a part of this answer. He answers our prayers and he gives us wisdom. And we are led by the Spirit as we receive the answer to that prayer. Number four, the Holy Spirit led in 56 AD through the opening and closing of doors of opportunity. Maybe this is maybe a little new to you to think about this, but we're going to see a dramatic example of this in Acts chapter 16, how the Holy Spirit systematically leads Paul and Silas on the second missionary journey by closing a series of doors and then opening the one that was right. The Holy Spirit was leading them to the place and the time and the people and the thing that they needed to be doing. We'll get to that in a minute. And here's number five. The Holy Spirit led, leads, or led in 56 AD through a sense of urgency or crisis that would move a Christian to the right place at the right time, doing the right thing for the right person for the right reason. I think I got all the rights in there. I don't know. A sense of urgency where a person felt compelled, driven, uh, caused to move in a certain way or caused to say a certain thing. The most dramatic example of this, I believe, is what uh, comes up in the temptation of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 4 and 1, this is the, uh, the account we normally turn to to read about the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. And that, that account begins with these words, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now those are the words we're looking for, being led by the Spirit. Jesus was led by the Spirit. That's what Matthew says. That's how Matthew expresses it. But if you turn over to Mark, Mark describes it with slightly different words. And I want you to catch this. It says in Mark 1, 12 through 13, it says this. Immediately the Spirit, this is the New American Standard Version, impelled. English Standard Version will say drove. The uh, Common English Bible says forced him to go out into the wilderness. You, you understand there's an urgency here. There's, there's something going on here where it's almost as if Jesus doesn't really have too much of a choice. He's getting bulldozed, so to speak, to go into the, the wilderness. And there he's going to be tempted by the devil. That's a, that's a different sort of thought than maybe uh, what we have. But I, I just want you to notice in Matthew 4 and 1, this whole thing is called led by the Spirit. In Mark chapter 1, verses 12 through 13, it's being impelled by the Spirit. Forced, driven by the Spirit. And in this way, the Spirit also can lead us. So, I, I, I just wanted to get all this out here uh, for you to think about. With one exception, 
I believe that all five of these, and we'll talk about the exception in a minute, with one exception, I believe that all of these, in some sense, are ways that the Spirit leads us today as Christians. And I want to take the time now to explain what I'm talking about. A couple of these will be, you know, like I'm saying the sky is blue. You know, you understand. But some of these will need some explanation. Let's start with the first one. The primary way that the Spirit leads Christians and leads the church today is through the revelation that was given to the, to the apostles. There's the promise. John 16, 12 through 13, Jesus said that to the apostles in private. The night before he is crucified, he says, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, what will he do? He'll guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will disclose to you what is to come. Jesus makes this promise to specifically to the apostles. This is a miraculous gift that's being given to the apostles. It wasn't for anyone else. It was for these 11 or 12 men at, at the time that, uh, that Jesus makes this statement. And we understand that if he's going to give all the truth to these 11 or 12 men at this point, that means that all the truth that God has to speak was going to come in the lifetime of these apostles. The last one to die was John, around the middle of the, of the, uh, of the last decade of the first century. And they're going to receive all the truth. And what I want you to understand, our New Testaments exist because that promise right there was made to the apostles. That promise is the root of it all for us. And as we have our New Testaments, we understand the Spirit is still leading us through the words that have been preserved in our New Testaments. These come from the Holy Spirit. They are the writings of the apostles who are being guided into all the truth. And I want to say something here before I leave this. This is the final definitive word of God. If we think we're being led by the Spirit to believe or do anything contrary to what the Word says, we're mistaken. The Spirit will never contradict himself. And if you've been around religious people, some, you will hear them sometimes use the term led by the Spirit. I felt led by the Spirit to do this or say this or be there or be there. And you'll, sometimes you'll pick up on the fact that they were being led by the Spirit to do something contrary to what the word actually says. I've actually heard this, that someone, I know the, what the Bible says, but I felt led by the Spirit to do something else. That cannot be. That cannot be. The Spirit will never contradict himself. And I can read it, if I can read it in black and white in, in this New Testament, I know that came from the Holy Spirit. But what this person may say about being led by the Spirit to do something other than cannot be right. It cannot be from the Holy Spirit. So let's, let's just get that out there right now. So even to this present time, the Spirit is leading us through the writings, uh, through the inspired word, the word which the uh, Holy Spirit gave to the apostles. All right, let's go to number two. In 56 AD, it was true that there was revelation being given to people beside the apostles. They were, given, they were sometimes called prophets or people who possessed the gift of wisdom or the gift of knowledge. These are all described in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. These are miraculous gifts. And let me explain why these things even happened. The apostles were tremendously successful in fulfilling the Great Commission. As they went out, they, they preached the word here and there, and everywhere they preached there would be Christians made, and if you had a bunch of Christians, then pretty soon you're going to have a church. You've got a church, whether you want to admit it or not. You've got a group of Christians in, in the same place, and they start to meet. You've you got a church. Well, the apostles were so successful 
they couldn't be, they couldn't take care of all these churches. There were hundreds of churches. Very soon, it just took a, 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 a matter of a few years, there were hundreds of churches all over, uh, uh, all over the, this area of the world. And there's only 12 apostles. These people needed teaching. They needed someone to lead them. They needed, uh, they needed help. The apostles needed someone to step in. There was no New Testament. The New Testament's still in the process of being given. And so God made it so that there could be teaching and leadership and guidance for all of these churches by endowing certain people in the congregations with the gifts of the, gifts of the Spirit, miraculous gifts. And some of those gifts were uh, gifts of revelation. Well, and, and let's just read. Here's the list of gifts found in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul says, but to each one of us is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom. That was a revelation gift. Through the Spirit. And to another, the word of knowledge. According to the same Spirit. That's another revelation gift. To another, faith. I think that one's a little different than a revelation gift. And we're studying 1 Corinthians on Sunday night. And when we get here, I'll, we'll talk about this gift of faith. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. That was a miraculous gift. A gift that was given to confirm the teaching of the revelation gifts. Then we go on to verse 10 and 11. And to another, the effecting of miracles. Another, the miracles would confirm the teaching. And to another, prophecy. There it is. Another one of those revelation gifts. And to another, the distinguishing of spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. And to another, the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. As I say, the apostles were so successful that they needed help. The churches needed guidance. They needed teaching. And so in order that these churches could grow, God gave these miraculous gifts. And here's the only thing you need to know about these gifts right now, and that is they were temporary. In the chapter following 1 Corinthians 12 comes 1 Corinthians 13. You thought that was the great chapter on love. It is the great chapter on love. That's also the chapter that explains why these gifts are temporary why they were going to end, why they would soon end, and that the people at Corinth needed to focus more on love than they did on whether they could speak in tongues or not, or whether they could prophesy or not. So the gifts are temporary. And uh, all I want to say is I do not believe the Spirit is any longer leading through people endowed with miraculous gifts of prophecy and wisdom and knowledge and, and the, the gifts of revelation there. And like I say, we can talk about that at another time. But that brings us to number three. The Holy Spirit leads through the wisdom gained through prayer. Let's go back to James 1 and 5. Our New Testament teaches in big principles for the most part. But what you'll find out if you have tried to apply the teachings of the New Testament to your life here in Minford, Ohio, 2015, and the decisions you have to make, there's a lot of stuff that falls through the cracks. You can know the Bible very well. You can understand it very well, but you can come up against some questions that you're just scratching your head and going, what is God's will on this particular question? James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. And so th this, is, this is God's answer for those times, those things that we, you know, we're, we've got the big principles, we understand the teachings, we know, the, we know our Bibles, but here's something here that I'm just, I just don't know what I want to do, what I can do, what I should do with this. So to give you an example, I'm talking about a lot of personal decisions we make that the Bible doesn't speak directly on. 
Things like, you know, what, what is my career going to be? Am I going to get married? And who am I going to marry? Will I have children? If I do, how many will I have? And where am I going to live? And should I buy that house or buy that car? Should I start a business or where, would I, where should I go to school? All those are important questions. Those are questions that uh, are important to us and, and our development as Christians to answer those questions in the best possible way. Well, you, you can't go to the New Testament and get a, a definitive answer necessarily. You, you'll get some information. You'll get some guidelines. But if you want God's view of that, it's time to pray the prayer and ask for wisdom. God, give me wisdom. That, I believe, is one of the ways the Spirit leads. Also, I, I think we need to understand that not every decision that we face is a matter of right or wrong. I mean, if it's right and wrong, usually that's fairly easy to figure out what God's will is. Sometimes the decisions that we're facing is a matter of we've got ten great options in front of us, or, or four or six or whatever. Ten good options. All of them square okay with the Bible. They're fine. But we want to know the best we want to do the very best thing that we can in this situation. So now it's time to pray the prayer because we like wisdom. We want to see this thing as God sees it and to, and to make the decision that he would make if he were in our position. So some things fall through the cracks in between the verses of our, of our Bibles. And what do we do? Well, we pray. We ask for wisdom. And James says God will give us wisdom liberally. And that is a kind of guidance those who heed the wisdom that is given this way are being led by the Spirit of God. I think of another verse that just falls in line with this. It's Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. It's the verse that says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your path. It's in that sixth verse, In all your ways acknowledge him. How do you acknowledge God in all your ways? You talk to him about it. Your ways. <laughs> it, it, it's, not just a, it's not just your decision. It's not just your ideas that, that's going to prevail here. You acknowledge him by saying, Lord, you know, I want to please you. I'm, can you help me out here? Can you give me some guidance? Can you bless this endeavor or whatever it is? Can you show me which way I need to walk? And it says, in all your ways acknowledge him. What happens then? He shall direct your path. He leads you. In the case of Christians, we are being led by the Holy Spirit. Let's go to number four. The Holy Spirit led in 56 AD through the opening and closing of doors of opportunity. And I think the same kind of process is going on today. There is a way that God leads Christians by opening and closing doors of opportunity that may be in front of them. I want, the example I want to use is actually from Acts chapter 16. But uh, I want to put a map up here because what, what's happening, this is a map of the, uh, of the second missionary journey of Paul. In Acts 16, that, that's what we're reading about. In Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas go out, on the, uh, go out on the first missionary journey, and they go up. Now, this is one of the downfalls of having four, four maps up here, but I'm just going to do, do two. They go up. The, the first missionary journey was basically up in this area right in here. This area was called Galatia for the most part, that area there. And I'll turn around and do it again for the benefit of people on the other side. This area right in here was the area that was evangelized in the first missionary journey. Uh, in addition to the island of Cyprus. Uh, they stopped off at Cyprus and then went up into that part of Asia Minor. The Galat we have a letter written to those churches called Galatians. These were the Galatian churches. Antioch, 
uh, Iconium, Lystra, Derby. Those were the uh, Galatian churches. And there were probably a lot of smaller ones around in there too. But anyway, uh, they go on their first missionary journey. They come back to Jerusalem, and they report what happens on that journey in Jerusalem. And there's a big meeting there. The big meet, we call it the Jerusalem Conference. And there are certain questions that were raised on that first missionary journey about Gentiles and what? Hey, we're going out here, we're preaching to Gentiles. And they're becoming Christians. And, you know, we, we've never had a Gentile Christian before. Uh, we know what to do with Jewish Christians. But what about Gentiles? What are we going to tell them? They're just a totally different bird than, than the rest of us. And so they, they worked this out in, in Acts chapter 15, the kinds of things that would be expected of a Gentile Christian in order that Gentiles and Jews in the church could get along together. So at the end of the conference, we're at the end of Acts chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas say, you know what we need to do now that we got this new information? We need to go back to these churches right here and tell them everything that was just now decided. These churches right here, we're going to go back and tell them everything that was decided over here in Jerusalem uh, just a little while ago. And so that's what the second missionary journey is about. It starts off with Paul and Silas, well, Barnabas and Paul part ways, and it's Paul and Silas. The beginning of chapter 16, start on their first missionary journey. They make a little different journey, but look, here's where they go. The first thing they do is they go up into this area right here, Iconium, Lystra, and Derby, to those churches there. They had a plan. If you read chapter 16, these guys had a plan. Because after they visited these churches here in Galatia, there we go, their plan was to head straight on through over here to Asia, the capital city of which is Ephesus. And so let me turn around and do this again. Here's Ephesus, and this was a, a province known as Asia right in here. The seven churches of Asia in, in our Rev, book of Revelation. Uh, it's a fairly, fairly large province right there, but Ephesus was the main city. And their idea was, hey, let's, let's, don't, let's take care of this. Well, we, you know, we, we've got our beachhead here in Galatia. Let's head, for, uh, let's head for Asia. And they were thinking mainly of Ephesus when they did this. So here's what happens. They, they head, uh, after they finish off in Antioch, they think uh, they have found out along the way that God did not want them to go to Asia. So instead of going this way, and here we go, let me turn around here and do it here. Here at the Antioch, they found out along the way God did not want them to go this way, go to Ephesus or Asia. He wanted them to go, uh, they, God didn't say where to go. So the next best thing in their plan was we're going to go to Bithynia. Bithynia is up here to the north, and you see how the, the journey changes here. There we go. And when they leave Antioch, they head for Bithynia. They wanted to go over here to Ephesus. As they're going to Bithynia, they find out, no, Bithynia is not the place. Another door closes. God closed the door, first of all, on Asia, Ephesus. Then he closes the door on Bithynia. And when they're up here in Bithynia, they think, well, what's the third best thing we could do here? And they, they're looking at Troas over here. And so... The door gets closed in Bithynia, and there they go to Troas. Finally, in Troas, they think they're going to be doing some great work there, some great commission-type work in Troas. And the door gets closed there. And they find out, finally, where they're actually going to be working. God sends them across the sea over to Philippi. And so in Acts chapter 16, you eventually end up in the place of Philippi. Let, let me read these words to you. Let's go to Acts, Acts chapter 16, verses 4 through 6. Now, while they were passing through the cities, these are the cities of Galatia, they were delivering the decrees which had been decided upon by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. Okay, the Jerusalem conference. 
for them to observe. So the churches are being strengthened in the faith and were increasing in number daily. They passed through uh, Phrygian and Galatian region. They passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region. That's, that was Antioch, Iconium, uh, Lystra, Derby, those churches right there in the first missionary journey. Having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Their first plan was to get, hit these churches and go to Asia. But the door got closed. So now what happens? Okay, we're going to check verse 7. Now while, and after they came to Mysia, the door got closed on Asia, so they head up, head up to the north, to the north, uh, northwest. They come to Mysia, they were trying to go into Bithynia. That was, uh, that was north and west of Antioch. And the spirit of Jesus did not permit them. Door number two gets closed. Now let's go on to verses, uh, the following verses. And passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. And they think, okay, here's the place. This is where we're going to do our work. And when they get to Troas, another door closes. Nope, not doing Troas. Verse 9, a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And it, they were correct in making that conclusion. So, let me ask you this. Would you say that Paul and Silas were being led by the Spirit as they made their second missionary journey? Well, of course. But it's an odd kind of way that they're being led. Uh, they're not being told where they can go or should go. But after they make their plan and start, God steps in and closes the door and sends them off in another direction. This happens. There's three cycles of this that happens in Acts chapter 16. And at least part of the leading is a closing of doors to them. And finally, in a vision, a door is opened where they are finally, uh, something they never initially considered at all. They're finally sent across into Europe and where they go to Philippi and they begin their work there. Now, there's a couple things here I want you to notice about the leading of the Spirit. First one is this. In the absence of a clear understanding of what God's will is, this is what we have to do. We need to make the best decision that we can and trust God to shut the door if we are headed in the wrong direction and eventually get us to the right place. If a door closes along the way, the door that we were wanting to go through, the one that we thought was best, thank him and ask him for a better plan. Paul and Silas went through this cycle three times before it was clear to them, God made it clear exactly where they were supposed to be. So here's what I want to say. Do not think that because a door that you had your eye on suddenly gets closed that God has abandoned you. He may be leading you to something much, much better and something within his will. When those doors close, they close for a reason. And when doors open, they open for a reason. And sometimes I, do, I truly believe it is God at work in our lives. It's, it's the Spirit leading us, helping us get to the place where we need to be. Uh, to just give you an example of this, my wife Serena, uh, back in 2009, finally got an agent. And uh, she gave that agent, a book agent, she gave that agent a book and said, see if you can, you know, sell this to somebody. And the agent tried for, uh, what, two, three, four, five months to, to sell this thing, and there were people biting on it and everything. Finally, the agent in about September, August or September 2009, calls her up and says, hey, you know, um, 
your name is Miller, you live in Ohio, would you be interested in writing Amish? Could you write Amish? And Serena listened to what she said. She said, yeah, I can write Amish. Go ahead. See, see what you could do. Well, she, the agent had something in mind. The agent calls back about two weeks later, and she says, oh, guess what? I've, I've got something lined up here, but I'm not sure that you want it. She said, uh, this, this line, love finds you in, and fill in the blank of about 50 different towns and villages in the United States. Love finds you in. Uh, they're wanting something done with an Amish town. And, uh, in fact, they want uh, uh, something written about Charm, Ohio. Man, that's a little tiny place. I mean, there's like nothing but a lumber company there. They want something written about Charm, Ohio. They'll find you in Charm, Ohio. But the deal is they just had, they had an author lined up. They backed out. They've got to have this thing done in six weeks. And um, she said, would you be willing to do it? And Serena reluctantly said yes, because six weeks is like impossible. But she said, yeah, I, I think I can do it. So the agent goes back. Serena's all geared up. She's all excited about this because this is her first opportunity. This is her big break. It's a tough way to go, but it's her big break. And about one day later, that agent calls back and says, well, um, you're not going to be doing charm after all. We've, uh, that book's been given to another author. Serena was crushed. She was ready to write that thing, even though it was going to be impossible. It, it, the, the, a door apparently was opening up, and then it just closed. But about two weeks later, the same agent calls back and says, you know what? They're wanting another book about, without that, this, this terrible uh, deadline attached to it, about Sugar Creek. Could you write a book about Sugar Creek? And Serena said, yes. And a lot of good things have happened because of that, of that book for Serena. And what I'm saying, that's kind of, I think that's kind of how God works. That book, uh, there's nothing in charm to write about, okay? <laughs> We've been there. <laughs> and uh, it, the, the biggest problem with charm is that it is all Amish. Sugar Creek is mostly English people, and they are much more cooperative than the Amish are when it comes to pictures and things like that. And Serena was able to make, write a, a very good book, and eventually a movie's made out of it and all. But I, I'm just saying, just because God closes one door that you had your eye on doesn't mean he's abandoned you. He might be lining up something better. I think the Spirit does lead. Here's the second thing I want you to think about, when, about the leading of the Spirit, about this opening and closing of doors. In the absence of a clear understanding of what God's will is, Make the best decision you can and move in that direction. And don't stop until God redirects you. Now, why am I saying that? Keep, basically what I'm saying is keep moving. Why? Because God cannot guide and the Holy Spirit cannot lead a servant who is in park. That makes almost as much sense as getting in a car without the motor on. That You're going to sit in a car and hold the steering wheel. And pretend like you're driving. You're not going anywhere. You're not driving the car. You're sitting in the car. Okay? The car has to be moving in order to be driven, in order to take it somewhere. Same would be true of a boat. If you anchor a boat, you, you, the boat's not going anywhere. What I'm saying, God can lead us as long as we are moving. The Spirit can lead us as long as we keep moving. But when we stop, there's no more leading. <laughs> okay? We're in park. And nothing happens. Paul and Silas did not stop 
just because God was shutting those doors. They kept moving. It was, and what they were doing wasn't exactly where God wanted them to go, but as long as they were moving, he could guide them and steer them to the place he wanted them to be. And that's exactly what happens in Acts chapter 16. Here's the fifth thing I want you to think about. The Holy Spirit leads to a sense of urgency or crisis that gets us to the right place, the right time, doing the right thing for the right person, saying the right words. The prime example of this is Jesus himself. I had that up there a little while ago. I've explained it already. And I'm just going to go on. I'm looking at Matthew 4 and Mark 1, 12 through 13. You remember what we said there. Sometimes as Christians, we just know it's time to do something or say something, to go see somebody, take care of some situation, to make some decision. You just know it's time. You feel compelled. You feel uh, pushed. You know you're not going to put it off anymore. This is tricky because our own wills can get wound up in this and it can become very subjective about what happens here. But clearly, there are times when the Spirit is leading us by pushing us to the thing that we need to do. We feel compelled to say this thing, to go see this person, to go to this place. We don't know why, we don't understand why, but there we are. And I, as I say, I know this is a very subjective thing, and it, it's easy to get confused. But I, there are at least a few times in my life when I'm fairly certain the Holy Spirit led me to say some words. But they were not words that came from me. They were not words that I planned to say necessarily. I didn't even know why I was saying them. There was a time when um, a young woman in Detroit was laying in a hospital bed after a very serious operation. She was not a Christian, but she had been considering it. I'd been studying with her and her husband. In the weeks leading up to this operation, I knew it was coming. I'd gone to pray with her before the, before the operation and went to see her afterwards. Her husband had already become a Christian. He had, he had made his decision, but she was holding back for some reason or the other. Anyway, she'd just gone through this very serious operation, and she wanted me to say a prayer of thanks for God's blessing. Would you thank the Lord for getting me through this? And I said, sure. And then... There were some words that were impressing on my mind. I don't know why they were there. They didn't seem to have any direct connection to what, was, what I was looking at, what I was dealing with here as I talked with this lady, but I said them anyway, and they were the right words. She broke down right there, and as far as her will was concerned, it was surrendered to God at that moment. What she promised me is that as soon as she could get out of that bed, she was going to give her life to Christ. She was going to be baptized. And she did. I suspect that every Christian here has had at least a few experiences like that where you found yourself compelled to say something or do something that is not characteristic of you. Maybe you didn't understand why you were even doing it or saying it or why you were going there, but you did what you felt compelled to do. And later discovered, as you look back on that situation, that God had to be behind it, that that was the best explanation you could come up with, that evidently God was leading by his spirit. Now, one more time, I want to say this. Sometimes people let this kind of leading, this definition of leading, override what the spirit has told us in the pages of scripture. And if you use this kind of leading to avoid having to do what the spirit teaches us in the scripture, you're being deceived by Satan. The spirit will never contradict himself. And if you think the Spirit is telling you to ignore what is clearly stated in Scripture, think again. That just cannot be true. But here we are. All of us who are led by the Spirit are children of God. 
The Spirit leads us through the revelation of our New Testament. He leads us through the wisdom that he gives in prayer. He leads us through the opening and closing of doors. Our job is just to keep moving. He leads us through a sense of urgency that he gives us when we need to go somewhere, see somebody, say some words, do something. He can lead us that way. But here's the big question, and this is a personal question, and this is a question all of us need to answer here. Am I being led by the Holy Spirit? And it's the big question because if you're led by the Spirit of God, you are a child of God. That's how Romans 8.14 defines who a Christian is. The person who is being led by the Spirit of God. The next time we uh, come back to this, I want to talk about walking by the Spirit. That's uh, very similar to this, but it's a little different. And I want you to be able to think about that. Maybe there's someone here this morning, not a Christian. We're going to sing our hymn. Uh, And you know what? I hope somebody here feels compelled, pushed, like they really need to do something this morning. If it's a Christian, that's the Holy Spirit pushing you forward. And you you need to tell the congregation about this. You need to confess this. You need to get this off your chest. You need to get some stuff straightened out. And today's your day. And if you are not a Christian, just trust that's the Holy Spirit convicting you of your sin and telling you you need to take care of the big question of life today. Am I going to be a child of God or am I going to be a child of Satan, the devil? You want to become a child of God today by faith and repentance and confession of faith and by baptism, we enter into the body of Christ and we're inviting you to come. Let's